Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Professors Lisa Adkins and Martin Konings to discuss the asset economy, their new book co-written with Professor Melinda Cooper, which will be published in December by Polity. At the heart of this short book is a single argument, quote, the key element shaping inequality is no longer the employment relationship, but rather whether one is able to buy assets that appreciate at a faster rate than both inflation and wages, unquote. You may think you've heard something like this before, most notably in Tom Piketty's 2014 blockbuster, Capital in the 21st Century. But today's authors add an important new twist. In the developed economies, and especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, the asset economy hasn't just widened inequalities and fed a creation of a super-rich rentier class. The authors claim that average households have actually turned Minskian. Quote, People are increasingly living, managing, and planning asset-driven lives ordered by the speculative logics of asset appreciation, unquote. Lisa Rankins is the head of the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. She is an Academy of Finland Distinguished Professor and has held chairs in sociology at the University of Manchester and at Goldsmiths, London. Also at the University of Sydney, Martin Konings is Professor of Political Economy and Social Theory. Lisa and Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very Thanks, much. Ben. Nice to be here. Now, you say in the introduction that the three of you had been working on similar themes in your research. How exactly did the book come together? Um, I think if I uh, can uh, go first here, like I think at the time I was uh, working with Melinda Cooper on a number of um, projects and we were both finishing up um, books that had overlapping themes. Um Lisa's previous book on the time of money was also very much on our radar because it was uh, published in a series with uh, Stanford that we edited. And we saw this kind of convergence of um, different problematics already revolving around um, how the logic of assets is um, reshaping how we think about modern society and the kind of inequalities that it produces. Um, and I think we started off by inviting Lisa to work with us on a uh, grant application. And from there, um, we started up uh, a, a project at the University of Sydney. It's called uh, The Asset Economy as well. Um, and this was funded by the, uh, uh, generously funded by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And so the book became this centerpiece of that project. And um, yeah, I think that's how how we got here. And if I can just jump in, if I may, Tim. Um, So we had these kind of books that were all pointing in the same direction and kind of revolving about around asset price appreciation. And I think what distinguishes the kind of co-author book from our other three books, um, independently written, is the focus that we placed on um, 
asset price appreciation in relation to housing prices. So we became really interested in this um, simultaneous rise in, in housing price, prices and, and stagnating wages. And we became quite um, focused on the relationship between the two. And we were intrigued to kind of discover or to find out more about the institutional drivers. And living in Sydney, of course, was <laughs> kind of perfect for us to think about this um, in the sense that like London, um, Sydney has had soaring house prices over a number of decades. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a, a thing a lot of people remember from from the Piketty book was was the notion that we had returned to the times, times of uh, Jane Austen, you know, the idea that when who you married was more important than what you did. But what really jumps out to me in your book is the idea that the asset economy is much more dynamic than that. And I've picked, I've picked out two money quotes, and I've got to say the book is full of them. It, it, it was a bit like a sort of economic Hamlet or something. <laughs> so, quote, um, inheritance is no longer a simple transmission of property titles, but increasingly a strategically timed transfer of funds that need to be leveraged and put to work in the speculative logic of the asset economy. And the second one is, the asset economy requires not low commitment participation in trading, but investment and exposure, unquote. Did reaching this conclusion feel a bit like a eureka moment to you? In some way, I guess a little bit. I think, I mean, perhaps to clarify, like we, uh, I think we all fully accept the Piketty story as far as it goes. You know, there's a real uh, return of, you know, we call it the 1% story, right? Like the um, extreme concentration of wealth at the very, very top. We, and I think that's totally happening. It's a real phenomenon where we felt a little that the Piketty story is incomplete is the, is the fact that it cannot really explain why, you know, if these ben- benefits go to so few people, why these policies have such longevity. Um, and that's where we were really led to look at how the, these policies that, that lead, lead to this concentration of wealth are really embedded in a much wider middle-class politics uh, that primarily centers on housing. And again, as Lisa just mentioned, this, was, this is so obvious in Sydney. Nobody, nobody who sort of lives a middle-class life can really afford to ignore that. Um, so that is where we became really interested in trying to resituate uh, Piketty's conclusion and look look at them through a slightly different lens. And that is also where, when he, when Piketty talks about things like inheritance, he very much sees it as a return to another time, like late 19th century um, plutocracy. And we're saying, yeah, that, that is partly what's going on, but what is much more interesting is what is happening or what, you know, what is equally important and what you need to understand that the wider configuration is really what is happening in the middle where even regular people who would not necessarily even have grown up thinking about things like inheritance are now increasingly um, dependent, not so that they can live a rentier lifestyle at all, but just so they can get into the property market and um, participate in that sort of upward logic of um, property prices, which is, you know, which is not no longer optional. It feels like you know you have to be in that, or you might very well um, 
fall fall by the wayside when it comes to achieving that middle class lifestyle. Um, and then I think that that part of that merging of let's say the the, the old fashioned feudalism with the, the the hyper speculative capitalism is what led us to thinking about um, the Minskyan household. And I think Lisa um, will want to expand on that a little bit, probably. Yeah, no, thanks, Martin. Um, I mean, just to, just to kind of um, underscore Martin's point. So if you, first of all, if you look at um, uh, wealth gains in the middle um, for people, for households that are owning property across the kind of inflationary period in regard to house prices, you can see significant gains um, in uh, um, across the distribution. So not just at the very top. And of course, we're facing a different story now because we're seeing lockout from the property market, but we can return to that issue. Um, but on the Minskian household, um, so... I mean, actually, Martin is, is, is an expert on Minsky as, um, as a financial economist. Um, but what we argue in the book is that the dynamics of household has actually shifted um, significantly as a cons- consequence of the asset economy. So now um, what defines or what's key for a household staying afloat is actually liquidity. Um, so if we think about the household as uh, we think about the household in the book um, as, a, as a balance sheet with, with assets and liabilities. And of course, the key for households for um, keeping themselves not just afloat, but making sure that they get a return on their investment in the future um, is being able to make regular payments on mortgages and so on. Um, and and the household then perfectly um, perfectly corresponds to the kind of balance sheet dynamics that Minsky described in terms of um, financial policymakers and so on. So we try we try in the book to reconceptualize how the household operates, which is in contrast to, for example, the story that we're so used to hearing from post-Keynesians, for example, that you know the house households can't maintain such levels of debt, and there will be a kind of tipping point where um, households will collapse and the property bubble will burst. And of course, we never see that point. Of course, some households do go under um, that are indebted, but the majority actually survive. Um, and so, our argument then is that what what characterizes um, the current era is is the Minskian house, household rather than say the Keynesian household. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting point. And is is your argument there that the economic tipping point doesn't happen simply because because the family unit itself is adapting? There's a sort of evolutionary adaptation into a more Minskian household. So if it looks as though a, a part of the younger generation will not, not be able to get hold of sufficient capital to put down a lump sum. Other parts of the family will find it. Yeah. Um, is, is, yeah. Is there, a, is there a natural adjustment mechanism there? I wouldn't say it's an, I wouldn't describe you as an, I mean, being social scientists, we're always a bit alarmed when we hear the word natural. Um, but um, I mean, two points. Yes, it's the, the kind of reprodu- the reproduction of class um, and for households to reproduce themselves through time, if you like, um, 
then intergenerational transfers have become critical. Um, and as, as younger generations now find themselves locked out of the housing market because um, of rising house prices. Um, but in regard to the first point, um, I mean, uh, uh, and tipping points, our argument actually is we can't find such objective tipping points precisely because of the speculative dynamics involved in households. So it's, it's about the critical thing is not a tipping point or an amount of debt, but rather the maintenance of liquidity. So if you can't maintain liquidity, that's when a household won't survive. And perhaps to just elaborate on that a little bit, I think that the idea of a um, tipping point is very associated with the notion that the property market works like any other market so that if you, um, you know, inflate it to a certain extent, then at some point, you know, it will become apparent, the, the overvaluation will become apparent to everyone and then the whole thing will collapse. And that is sort of the traditional reading of Minsky is very much about, you know, him being a critic of over indebtedness. And so we're trying to shift that and say, well, you know, there's no objective point of over indebtedness where the whole system will collapse. It all depends on um, how those liquidity flows are maintained or otherwise. So the um, property market is actually in some ways quite um, a transparent market in the sense that people know that, you know, these valuations are speculative. They're not, you know, people can see that. Uh, and yet it doesn't uh, crash ever in the way that people projected will. And that has everything to do with the fact that it's not a regular market. It's not just um, governed by uh, the free uh, forces of supply and demand, but it is not just regulated, but it is propped up by uh, any number of um, public policy measures that are designed to put a floor under the market. And that is not just in order to reward speculators, which, you know, like that might be the effect at times, of course, but it's the case because there is, you know, there is this middle class, this broad-based middle class that has bought into this and that, you know, governments are uh, dependent on for their political support and they cannot just afford to let these people go under. They cannot just afford to let them uh, default on their mortgages. So and in Australia, that, that is all very um, on the surface that any number of policies that are uh, specifically targeted at ma making sure that people can uh, pay their mortgages and the, the whole problem around quantitative easing and uh, low interest rates sort of plays into that as well. But I think that is really the point we're making that the um, Sure, there may be overvaluation in some objective sense, but that's not the, the economics of that is not the end of it. You really need to look at why that is maintained and why public policy seems to be sort of locked in a certain pattern whereby it can only ever try to re, um, restart the market and maintain those valuations. Yeah, in fact, you you point out to those of us who don't live in Australia that uh, that, that that was a central point of the twenty nineteen federal election that the, the Labour Party was pushing some tax changes that were at least perceived to be a threat to um, property valuations and and ended up losing. And we've all seen equivalent. Um, well, certainly, we've seen equivalent things happen happen in the UK over the over the last couple of decades. How? 
and I, if I, I guess if I had one frustration from reading your book, um, it was that there weren't explicit policy proposals in it. It was an analysis of of a situation or or a or a dynamic. Can you can you imagine a series of public policy proposals that would a work and and b people would vote for them? Okay, sorry. I think Lisa and I are waiting for each other. I know. going to take this question, <laughs> but I have to go first. Um, well, no, actually, and, and I um, I agree with you that like I, I can relate to that being a frustrating feature of the book because we had to even during the writing we wanted to sort of work to something work towards something slightly more optimistic than we ended up with in a way, but we also felt that you know that kind of I wouldn't call it pessimism, but that kind of realism without solutions, um, that does, I think, reflect, and the frustration that that generates, I think that reflects something that is quite real, namely that we're in a situation where, I mean, I can think of any number of policies that would change the situation um, or, you know, open up the market or do something to um, reduce the inegalitarian effects of the current situation. But to the extent that those policies would have that effect, they would also lose their political purchase. Um, And so there's a really odd way in which um, public policy is is catering to a a slowly, gradually contracting middle class. Um, And, now there at some point may it be a tipping point, a political tipping point where you can only you know, afford to alienate so much of your constituency and you can only see so many people drop out of that um, you know, aspiring middle class household existence without there being some pushback. But ultimately, I do think that the solution or the solution to this problem or what will allow governments to break out of this policy uh, lock in is political pressure, uh, mobilization from below, or um, just the sheer, um, you know, a generation becoming so disaffected that it will become, uh, that it will be seen as a problem. I don't think there are any great technical solutions that are waiting for us that will do the trick, because I think those things already uh, would have been implemented. Mm. Actually, on on that uh, on that point, you know, the idea of a I don't know a, a rising millennial uh, rebellion. Um, I thought you addressed that very very well, very interestingly. In this, you, you make the point that it isn't. It's simplistic to see this as a generational combat, mm-hmm. and in fact, there are these, as you call them, intergeneration inter, intergenerational dynamics. That determine um, not that people um, have access to wealth, but the different modes of access to the wealth. Could could you elaborate on that point and why that's so important? Yeah, I can have a go at that. Um, and thanks for the question. I mean, I think what's become why um, why this is so important is because intergenerational transfers and inheritance have become the key mechanisms through which um, the wealth base gains or wealth, um, the wealth effect can be passed on um, through to the next generation. So what we're seeing as a consequence is that um, 
kind of traditional class-based um, markers of class and socioeconomic positioning, for instance, occupation and so on, are becoming less and less important as this um, mechanism of intergenerational um, transfer and, and inheritance and basically wealth transfers um, are, are on, on the up, as it were. So what's so important about these transfers is one, as we've already discussed, that they're not simply feudal-like, that they have this speculative dimension, but also that they're actually mechanisms of the reproduction of class and advantage um, and are quite um, and are, are, are dividing the po- populations quite rigidly. Um, so it's, it, they're very decisive, as it were. Um, and there's been quite a lot of research that's shown that even, I mean, in economics, actually, that even small transfers of wealth um, intergenerationally make a huge difference in terms of wealth accumulation over time if the transfers are used for um, property purchases. Mm. So in essence, they're they're mechanisms that are creating wealth inequalities. So that's why they're so significant, I think. And and we've actually just received some um, funding from the Australian Research Council to to look into this, um, the qualitative aspects and the qualitative effects of transfers um, more systematically. Yeah, and you you also make this very nice point. Um, I, I guess a lot of people, including me, tend to think of these generational transfers as something that happens at at death, and that you know, and that can, that's something that can be addressed by public policy with inheritance tax and so on. But you make this point about this increasing amount of intergenerational wealth transfer, um, as you put it, into vivos. So not just money going to um, younger people t- for lump sums on houses, but people taking on student loans, taking on past debts, funding unpaid internships and so on. Um it's you know so this is this is inheritance that actually happens during the lifetime of the benefactor. You you have data on that. F- I from memory, I I think you have data on that for the UK. In the book, is that is is it more widespread than that, or is this quite a at the moment it, is this quite a British thing? Well, it's definitely a British thing. It's definitely an Australian thing as well. Yeah. So there's um, research that's shown that. Um, parents aren't just simply making clean transfers, either on death or um, during their lifetimes, but also releasing equity um, from, their, from their properties to be able to fund, um, for instance, as you say, internships and so on. And there are really distinctive um, innovations in um, the mortgage consumer mortgage products that are enabling, enabling inter- intergenerational um, borrowing and capital flows so it's it's quite extraordinary um how these mechanisms are actually access to these transfers is actually determining life chances to a large extent um as you say not just in regard to accessing property and the wealth effects of property but also internships which are increasingly necessary for professional jobs um, and and other kind of life opportunities. 
Yeah, in the middle of the book, you you actually provide a, a schema for a new way of thinking about social class, one where the main determinant is that you're standing in the asset economy. Um, could you could you try and talk us through this without without the visual aid? Sure. Do you want me to? Should I have a go at that first of all? So, um, I mean, in a way, what we what we've done there, it's it's. A, a new class schema um, in which we try to represent how how it's not relationships to jobs or occupation or education that t- determines one's socioeconomic standing. And that's the kind of standard or orthodox way that social scientists think about socioeconomic positioning or class um, or social stratification. And what we try to show in our schema is how its relationship to assets and especially um, to residential property, which is producing a stratified social structure. So in other words, it's changing the social structure. So um, the critical kind of threshold is whether one owns or doesn't own an asset. Um, And of course, owning an asset can include... um, owning um, while one is indebted, obviously. Mm. So um, so at the very top of the scheme, you'd find Piketty's 1%, um, the super rich um, who have got portfolios of diversified assets. And then we've got two groups that we think Piketty and other people who are interested in the 1% tend to miss out, which is kind of, you know, as Martin's described them, the regular middle classes um, who might be, outright homeowners with um, maybe um, an investment property um, or or homeowners with mortgages. And again, they also might have investment properties as well. Mm. And then below the line, as it were, the other side of the threshold, we've got people with no housing assets. So renters um, who are locked out of um, asset ownership in the form of property and also the homeless. Um, So what we've tried to capture in our visualization is the ways in which um, its relationship to assets rather than to occupation or jobs that increasingly determines one's class position. Have you had any pushback on this uh, this schema from from other people in the field? Um, I think, yeah, definitely we've had some pushback in the sense that I think people read it quite literally and that mm. makes sense because we actually put it into a schema. So, you know, it's not, we can't really complain, but I think people, when people are presented with a classification like that, they do immediately respond by saying, well, you know, it is very obvious that for many, many people, um, employment and income from employment remains absolutely crucial and that is and we we don't deny that at all what we're saying is that income is less and less itself the basis of a middle class lifestyle and it's increasingly one of the factors among others that allows you to participate or not in this logic of the asset economy so that's where we're trying to reframe um the, the sources of inequality, not saying that, you know, like everything um, can be captured in this, but increasingly the logic of asset appreciation um, is shaping how social logics play out. Um, and 
yeah, like especially in Sydney, again, like you know, like this is all very obvious. Like there's now such a you know widespread knowledge of the fact that um, you know so many renters um, you know still spend large amounts of money on their rent, but this is all going towards somebody else's mortgage. It's it's you know that they're doing this to pay off somebody else's mortgage. An increasingly um, common phenomenon now is also middle class people who make a decent amount of money but not uh, enough to be able to live, to buy a house where they want. So what they do is they rent somewhere, uh, paying off somebody else's mortgage, while buying an investment property um, somewhere where, where they can afford it and renting that out so that somebody else is paying off that mortgage. So you end up with all these very strange, or you know, very strange, but like very unusual and unfamiliar situations. Um, that I think are really uh, symptomatic of the way in which the, 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 the social logic of inequality is shifting. And especially the fact that um, an average wage, uh, you know, we used to think that, well, that allows you to sort of buy a house and have those things that um, make you sort of solidly middle class in both an economic and the, and the cultural sense. And that situation has, is no longer uh, there. Okay, well, um, I have a final question now. Now this book is out of the way, um, what are you both working on? Are, are you elaborating this further, or working on something else entirely different? We're definitely wanting to elaborate it further. And thanks for the question, Tim. Um, I think I just mentioned that Martin and I, along with a colleague, Dallas Rogers, who's a housing studies um, scholar, um, we've just got a grant um, from the Australian Research Council to look at. Um, intergenerational transfers in further depth um, from a qualitative perspective. Um, and um, so we're, we're trying, we're going to look at how those intergenerational transfers may or may not make a difference to people in their life worlds. So we're looking really to really kind of get a further sociological grip on um, the, the, the kind of speculative aspects in particular of, of what kind of difference receiving a transfer really makes to, to people's lives, um, and especially um, including not only property ownership, but the other aspects that we've mentioned as well. So education, um, actually attending university, for example, and being able to pay off that debt, um, and also entering the labour market. Yeah. And you make that very... Um terrifying point about the enormous uh, cost of a liberal arts education, particularly in the, in the United States in that respect. Um, well, today um, I've been discussing the asset economy with two of its authors, Lisa Atkins and Martin Cunnings. The book will be published in December by Polity. Uh, Lisa and Martin, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Tim. <laughs>